say we are without you, um, we're like sheep without a shepherd, Lord. We are lost, we do what is right in our own eyes, that leads to destruction, Lord. Because we're so foolish and needful of wise leaders, Lord, we are very grateful, most of all, that you have given us your perfect son to be our king, our ruler, the head of your church, our husband. And I pray that we would all follow him, submit to him. I'm also thankful, Lord, for the pastors, elders that you have given us, your church, to lead us on a day-to-day basis. And I pray now that as we look in your word, in Titus chapter 1, as we look at the qualifications for the leaders that you have given us, Lord, I pray your standard of leadership would become our own, that we would adopt that. We would uh, take this profound description of true leadership and we would replace that. We would replace our superficial, empty, fleshly standard of leadership with your standard, Lord. Please help us now as we look at your word, see the ways that we fall short, and then give us the humility and the submission to order our lives around your standard. In your son's name we pray, amen. You may be seated, and as you're seated, please open up your Bible to Titus chapter 1. Last week we had the privilege of beginning a series in the book of Titus. We looked at verses 1 to 4 then, the introduction to the book, which had a lot of theology tightly packed in there. And now we kind of get into the body of the letter, verses 5 to 9 specifically is the section that we're entering, but uh, the sermon this morning is just going to be part one. We're only going to be able to cover verses 5 and 6, but I will go ahead and read the whole passage so that we have an idea of where we will be going. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I'll start off this morning by stating the obvious. Leadership matters. You know that from your life, from your life in your family, in your workplace, in your church, in any organization you've ever been in. You can look at that and you can realize quite clearly leadership is vitally important. Most basically, a group cannot rise above its leader. The leader, they can't be responsible for everything that happens, but what they do is they set the ceiling. The buck stops with them. Why is this? Well, because leaders, they provide three things. They provide instruction, they provide direction, and they provide demonstration. If you don't care for parallelism, you could put it as instruction, direction, and an example. Leaders instruct, they teach, they give the core truths, mission that the group will be um, centered around. 
And then from those core beliefs and teaching, they then give direction. They make decisions for the group as a whole. This is the step we are going to take. And then they make uh, personal decisions as well for individuals. They say, uh, you need to do this specifically. Or they give advice. You should consider doing this in this situation. And then finally, based on their uh, teaching and upholding of the core truths and then the various advice and direction they give, they then model those principles and directions in their own life. They provide a demonstration of what it looks like in the day-to-day life to believe that instruction, heed that uh, direction. And so your own experience, I'm certain that it testifies to the importance of leadership. Even more than that, Scripture testifies to the importance of leadership, really to the utmost. Throughout all of Scripture, God is testifying to the importance of righteous and godly leadership. This goes all the way back to the garden. The very first sin, of course, is Eve listening to the serpent, something that she was supposed to rule over. And then what is Adam's sin? He doesn't lead his wife well. No, instead, he listens to her, and he submits to her unrighteous direction to also eat of the fruit. The very beginning of the Bible opens with a failure in leadership. And what we have in Titus is a uh, description of the qualifications of a leader. Well, these are all throughout the Bible, too, with the different offices. The, uh, uh, the Pentateuch is full of instructions for how the priests, the prophets, and the kings are to conduct themselves and what qualifies a person for such an important role. And then the whole history of Israel, from Abraham in Genesis all the way to Ezra, the history of Israel is what? It's a history of leadership. With the patriarchs, we see their successes and their failures being leaders. Moses is one of the greatest leaders of all time, yet he doesn't enter the promised land because of a failure of leadership. Joshua is all about who's going to be the next leader now that Moses is gone. Judges testifies to the devastation that came to Israel when they did not have a leader, when there was no king, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Of course, the book of Psalms is written by royalty. The book of Proverbs is advice to a young would-be king, largely centering about how he will be a righteous and godly and wise leader when he grows up. And then the prophets. The prophets most often are using their time to rebuke the unrighteous leaders of Israel and the nations surrounding Israel. All of this, of course, comes to a head foremost in the Gospels, in the ministry of our Lord. What does he spend most of his time doing? He spends most of his his time rebuking and correcting the unrighteous religious leaders of his day and in their place raising up 12 apostles who will lead the church when he ascends into heaven. Leadership is vitally important. And of course, the ultimate culmination of this theme of leadership in the Bible is that we need a perfect leader. We need the God man, Jesus Christ. And so indeed, that is one of the ultimate blessings of Christianity is that we follow the epitome of perfection, We have no ceiling when it comes to our leader. He is the absolute perfect man. This is, you know, in contrast, could be considered to Muslims. Their leader is Muhammad. 
Therefore, what could a Muslim ever aspire to at most? That he could be like Muhammad. That is, that he could be like a vindictive polygamous warlord. That's his standard. That's not us, though. Our standard, the one who leads us, never did anything wrong. We are most of all thankful that Jesus Christ leads us. Yet, for the New Testament church, Jesus Christ is not the only leader that God has given his church. In his wisdom, he has also given his church elders and overseers, as they're described here in Titus verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. You can see there in verse 5 that these leaders are called elders. That refers to their status. And then down in verse 7, these same people are described by a different term, overseer, and that more describes their function. They are to look after and rule over God's church. And this role of the elder, it's, it's not peripheral, it's not superfluous, it's not, I guess someone needs to do some of the admin stuff of the church. No, the, the elders are given a very important role here in uh, verse 7. It says that these elders, it says they're God's stewards, stewards over his household. Um, that word steward, it's a very common word in the New Testament. It's used most often in Jesus' parables. Jesus tells a lot of parables about a guy who owns some land and he leaves, and so he puts a steward in charge of his property while he's gone. And this steward had great responsibility. He was basically in charge of everything while the master was gone. All employees reported to him. He made all decisions about how the mission would be carried out. In our parlance, he was the executive VP. He answered to the master alone. It's a very high calling that Paul gives these elders. That while Jesus Christ is ruling from heaven over all of God's local churches, his households, he has appointed various stewards who will manage the church in his place. This is a very high and important role, and it's necessary. This role is so important that as Paul is writing to Titus and giving him instructions on how he can lead the churches there to be islands on an island, to be islands of light in the midst of great darkness, what's the first thing that Paul tells him to do? He says you need to get the churches into order. You need to direct them, you need to set them up, and the way you're going to do that is by, first of all, appointing elders in every church. This is Titus's first priority in the evangelization of the island of Crete. It's the priority. And so, most specifically, these verses 5 to 9, what are they? Well, they're Paul, Christ's apostle, giving Titus his apostolic delegate, Uh, a list of qualities that Titus should look for as he goes around to the various cities on the island of Crete and he sets up elders. Now, nobody is in the position that Titus was. That's a role that has come and gone. No one's going around in areas deciding by themselves who's going to be the elder of a church. the, The closest application in our context to this would probably be elders deciding who another elder is going to be. Or maybe there's a church that doesn't have elders and they're deciding who among them is going to be their overseer. And yet even those situations aren't the most relevant to us, average church members. What is? 
what is the most relevant application of these qualifications for leaders? Uh, that's going to be our, the first thing that we look at in this text, the first thing that we're going to discuss. What's the relevance of this description of an elder? After that, we're going to go ahead and kind of look at all 15 qualifications and try and make some general observations. What could we say about all of these? What, what kind of binds all of it together? Then we will actually begin looking at the individual qualifications. And we'll only have time today to make it through the first few, only through verse 6. And then the next time that we're in Titus together, we'll pick things up in verse 7. So let's come back to that question then. Okay, these are qualifications for a role that most of you don't have, most of you will not have, and most of you are not going to be even involved with picking somebody. So what's the relevance of it? Well, it's very relevant, and it's very relevant for this reason. Every single person picks their leaders. Every person I know, I can tell you who leads them. I can tell you who provides them instruction, who provides them direction and advice, and who provides them an example of how to live. Every single person is going to do that. The question is not, are you going to choose leaders, but by what standard are you going to choose your leaders? And so point one this morning is this. Simply, choose your leaders according to God's standard. You are going to pick people to follow. You are going to become like certain people. There's no way around it. And again, the only question is, how are you going to choose those leaders? How are you going to choose the people that you are going to become like? It's vitally important. Who are your leaders right now? Your leaders could be pastors, whether near or far, someone, you know, Pastor John, someone you listen to every week, or it could be John Piper, who lives far away and doesn't even pastor a church anymore. It could be friends that you look up to for advice and for modeling of how to live. It could be family members. Ideally, you would look up to your father and wives, you would look up to your husband as a leader. Could be authors as well. Authors that write about politics or self help, business. Likewise, it could be a favorite podcaster, a psychologist, could be an influencer who on social media shows just what it means to live a happy and perfect and beautiful life. Who are your leaders? Who are the people you follow? Who teaches you? Who directs you? Who do you model your life after? One thing I want to note is that your elders are not necessarily your leaders. I mean that in this way. Uh, just because you are a member of a church doesn't mean that you actually treat the elders there as your leaders. It very well could happen, indeed it does happen, that you are on paper a member of a church, but in practice you do not actually respect the elders there as your leaders. You don't respect them, and so the things they teach, you don't really heed. The direction that they give to the church as a whole, you undermine. You never go to them for personal advice because you wouldn't care what they'd have to say, and you certainly don't try and model your life after them. And asking yourself, who are your leaders, it's not simply saying, well, I'm a member here at NBC, so it's the five elders we have. Do you really treat them as your leaders? The key thing here as we evaluate who our leaders are, and most of all as we think about by what standard are we going to choose our leaders, the 
vitally important thing to recognize is that human standards of leadership are very different than God's. We are foolish. We are superficial. We look at things that are vain and passing. A great illustration of this is the book of Samuel, where the people of Israel come to Samuel, say, hey, can you ask God if we can have a king? We want a king like all the other nations. And God says, all right, be careful what you wish for. I'm going to give you a king just like the other nations. I'm going to give you the exact king you want. And they get Saul, and Saul's exactly what they want. He's handsome, he's tall, he's, um, I, I, he's handsome, did I say that? Yeah, he doesn't really have any other qualities, but that doesn't matter. He looks good, that's what matters. The people of Israel, they reap what they sow, sadly. Saul's a, a disastrous leader, and God has been gracious to the people of Israel. He said, all right, I gave you the king you wanted, now I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to give you the king I want. I'm going to give you the king who conforms to my standards of leadership. I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. And this is beautifully demonstrated how God's standard is different than ours when he sends righteous, godly Samuel to go and find the next king from the house of Jesse. And you know the story. Samuel goes in the house of Jesse and he sees the oldest son. He sees how well-groomed he is and well put together. And he's tall and handsome. He thinks, oh yeah, duh, this guy's the leader. Uh, this guy's going to be a great king. And God says, no, that's not the guy. He's like, oh, okay, sure. And then he sees the next son. He sees how you know, strong and tall he is. And he thinks, oh, yeah, duh, how could, I, how could I have missed it? Of course, this guy's the leader. Of course, God says, no, that's not my leader either. No, the man who conformed to God's standard of leadership was the little kid who was out in the field who was too insignificant to even be thought to be brought into the house when Samuel came over. He's the one who conformed to God's standard of leadership. The story, of course, demonstrating the line from 1 Samuel. That the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. If you have any question of uh, modern day, 21st century Americans' ability to choose good leaders, well, just look at all the people who pay heed to the advice and thoughts of celebrities, who though they might have had uh, untold numbers of abortions, untold numbers of divorces, estranged children, uh, tumultuous financial situations, they are still listened to. Why? Because they're beautiful and they entertain us. That atones for everything else. As long as you look good, you must be able to give good advice. We do the same thing. We need to recognize how easily we look at the flesh. We look at the outward superficial things for leaders, even within the church, even among pastors and preachers. We are easily fixated on the flashy things, the things that are ultimately superficial. God's standard of leadership is really not what we would expect. And what you need to realize this morning is that you have a responsibility to pick your leaders You need to own that responsibility. You need to recognize that you're not very good at picking leaders, and therefore you need to hear what God has to say about who his leaders should be. And one thing I want to note is these uh, qualifications, these are specifically for elders in the local church, though I do think that they would apply very well to just about any other leadership position. Although, of course, uh, the more 
distinct that that leadership position is from being a pastor, the more exceptions and caveats would have to be made. But nevertheless, it holds true as a good standard for any kind of leader, especially spiritual leadership. All right, that's the relevance of this passage for us. Now, let's make a few observations about these 15 uh, qualifications as a whole. The first thing I'd like to note is just the importance of having pastors as your leaders. Among all the leaders you have, it's, it's great if you listen to authors, if you listen to pastors who live far away, that's great. It's very good, but you need to recognize that God has given you elders in the local church as the primary people to lead you spiritually. And while it's great to have those uh, outside, distant leaders, they can never replace, they ought never to replace, the role of the local church's elder in your life. It's the first thing I'd like to note. Second thing I'd like to note is that all of these qualifications are ethical. They have to do with with right and wrong, good and evil. And there's certainly, among some of these, an aspect of skill that would really uh, bring out and illuminate the good moral virtue, but ultimately, they're all good and evil. There are no amoral things among this list. They're ethical. Second, I want to note, is that these are not accomplishments. They're not concrete. That's very different than a job description that we'd find today for a job, right? And job descriptions today, they're about as concrete as they possibly can be. We want these specific degrees. We want this amount of years of leadership. And then even the more intangible things, they try and make it as concrete as possible. Be able to thrive in a fast-paced work environment and be task-oriented. They want to take out as much subjectivity as possible. But that is definitely not what Paul does with his list of qualifications. These are not accomplishments, concrete things that it's easy to just look at a person and ask them, hey, are you, uh, are you violent? Nope. Okay, great. It's not that simple. They're all a bit more intangible. The last thing I'd like to notice, they're all modest. Uh, unlike beauty or eloquence, some of these, almost all these qualities could be fully possessed by someone and yet it go ignored by most people. They're not flashy, they're modest. They're the very things that superficial, fleshly people would not look at as qualifications. All right, with those in mind, what can we say about these 15 qualifications as a whole? We can say this, point number two, value virtue above skill or accomplishments. Value virtue above skill or accomplishments. As you look for someone to lead you, as you look for someone to follow, Look at their character, most simply. What I mean by that word virtue is is good habits. What's really important in your leader and indeed in your own moral quality is not just that you do good things sometimes, but that you are defined by good things. Your behavior is not a a crapshoot. It's not random. It's not that... uh, you put an individual in a uh, situation and they could do anything at all. No, people generally respond in certain situations in an expected way. People develop habits, either good or bad. When they're good, we call them virtues. When they're bad, we call them vices. And these are the things that are important. 
Not just one event, not just one good deed or one bad deed, but in general, what is the habit of his life? What is the practice of his life? It's the same standard that you would apply if you were looking for someone to manage your money. You wouldn't just look to see if, uh, hey, have you ever made a good trade before? And they could say, oh yeah, back in 2009 I made so much money. And you'd say, all right, that's all that matters. Likewise, you'd be foolish to leave your, uh, your money manager simply because he made a bad trade. No, nobody's going to make 100% good trades. Sometimes you'll lose some money. You shouldn't look at any individual event. You need to look at it as a whole. What would be a reasonable expectation? Do I generally make money from this guy or do I generally lose money? It's the same thing as we look at the, the goodness, the morality of our leaders. It's not, did they do a good thing one time? It's not, did they do a bad thing one time? It's, do I expect them to do good? Is that the pattern of their life that when they are put in, gener- in different situations, I expect them to do the good and moral thing, and I would be surprised if they did something sinful? Though, of course, everybody sins. Everybody makes mistakes. should note this To make it obvious, this needs to be the the goal in your life too. Your goal shouldn't just be, I want to make sure I do something hospitable this week. It shouldn't be, uh, man, I don't know if I'm hospitable. Okay, I'll, I'll scheme up something to do something that's hospitable. Rather, it should be, I want to become a hospitable person. I want to be the type of person that when someone in need comes along, my natural reaction is to take care of them, to provide for them. When I, was, when I was younger, I used to be somewhat foolish, and I'd think that, you know, when I was at church, when I was in the spotlight more, I'm like, all right, you've got to make sure you keep all the, the virtues. You've got to make sure you're good. It was, I'm thinking, in this controlled situation, I want to make sure I don't do anything bad. It's the wrong way to think about it. The way to think about it is, I myself need to be a good person. It needs to be to, to, what defines my life so that whatever situation I'm put in, I will, naturally, it will be my habit, my practice to do the righteous and godly thing. That's what we're looking for in our elders, their virtue, their character, a godly life. Ultimately, Christ-likeness. All right, we talked about the relevance of this passage. We talked about um, some general statements about about what these 15 qualities tell us about what we should value, admire. Let's begin working our way through the list. Beginning there in verse 6, it says, if anyone is above reproach. That's a, uh, a word that's unique to the, uh, the pastoral epistles, um, Titus and 1 Timothy. It uh, could be translated as, as blameless. Most basically, the way you could think about it is this. A man's life must not contradict his teaching. What a man does should not undermine what he says. What it can't mean is that you know, no one ever says anything bad about him, that no one ever accuses him of anything evil. That can't be the standard, because literally every good leader throughout history has been falsely accused. As the proverb goes, the man who has no enemies has no honor. So Moses had his accusers, Paul certainly had his accusers, our Lord and Savior, the man who never did anything wrong. He was more falsely accused than anybody. So the principle can't be that no one ever says anything bad about him. 
has to be more specific. I think the principle should be this, that the people who know the man, they're the ones who uphold his character. The people who actually know the person, they do not bring accusations of wrongdoing against him. That is, that the man, if his integrity is ever questioned, what he can do is appeal to the people who know him and say, they can tell you I'm not that way. And that is what is important, that the people who know you testify to your integrity. Not that some people who, you know, only see how you present yourself on TV or on social media think you are. That can easily be fabricated. It would be incredibly hard to fabricate, though, the daily conduct of your life and the impression you have on the people who see you live day by day. This is what Paul himself does in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn over there. Look at verses 9 uh, 9 to 12. Just a few pages over. Paul, uh, when, when people question his integrity to the Thessalonians, all he has to say is, you know I'm not that way. He says in verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul has the boldness, the confidence in his own integrity to say to the Thessalonians, you know how I am. I don't need to tell you. You know my integrity. And every elder ought to be able to do that. And indeed, as you evaluate your own integrity, can you do that? Or is your virtue only held in your own mind? If the people who know you best were to be asked about that virtue, um, would you be afraid of what they would say? For someone to be qualified as an elder, the people who know them ought to be able to testify to their godliness, to their adherence to this qualities of a godly leader. That raises... um, a particular point about the relevance, too, of your local church's pastor. The preacher that you listen to who lives wherever on the mainland, uh, he might be great, you might love the things he says, he might seem like a, a great example to you. What he can never provide you, though, is a demonstration of integrity in his day-to-day life. You simply can't know it. It's not that he lacks the integrity, it's just you can't know for sure. He can't appeal to you for you to testify personally about his conduct. You don't know. And therefore, everything he says does come with a little less weight. It's very different of your local church pastor. The things he says, you can see if he backs it up in his life. If your local church pastor who you know well... If someone brings accusations against them, you don't have to wonder, oh, is that true? No, you can say, no, I know he's not that way. I know the guy. I know he's not greedy. I know he's not selfish. That's ridiculous. Now, this point came home to me poignantly one time when I worked at Grace Community Church. Um, I got a voicemail from a lady who was very upset, and she was basically crying on the voicemail. I could hardly tell what she wanted. Uh, I went ahead and called her back. And on the phone, again, she was very desperate, very upset, crying pretty much the whole time. And uh, you feel bad for the woman. She told me that the two people she looked up to most in life that gave her direction were 
John MacArthur and Ravi Zacharias. And as you know, Ravi Zacharias, after he died, it became clear that he was about the farthest you can be from qualified for ministry. She had been betrayed by that. She had supported both men uh, very significantly financially. And it broke her heart to hear what Ravi Zacharias was actually like in his day-to-day life. And at the time, there had been some false accusations made about uh, Pastor John MacArthur. And so she called me and she said, I need you to give me proof that that is not true of Pastor John. Basically, he's being accused of being greedy. She said, I need you, you know, Spencer, I need you to prove to me that John MacArthur is not greedy. And at first I was like, well, you know, I, I can tell you from my personal experience, I know him, he's not greedy, and I can tell you all the other people, the other elders who know him better than I do, uh, no one is going to think that John MacArthur's greedy. Uh, he's, that's just not at all what characterizes him. That's not his personality. A bit everyone could talk about how generous and selfless he is when it comes to money. That wasn't good enough for her, though. She said, nope, I, I, need, I need proof from that. I don't need just your witness. I need you to prove that he's not greedy. And I said, I can't do that. How, how could I possibly prove to you something about his day-to-day life and character? I mean, the only way that you could ever get that proof is if you, you know, moved out here and somehow were able to build a relationship with him. No, I think she lived in Florida. I told her, you living thousands of miles away, that, that's the downfall of following someone who lives so far away from you. You cannot verify their character and their leadership. And that doesn't mean that Uh, You shouldn't listen to these pastors. No, we all want you to listen to various uh, sound teachers throughout the country. But just realize that they can never play the role that your local church pastor has. If someone brought a false accusation against one of the elders here, I'd hope that you know them well enough that you could say, I know that's not true. It doesn't even faze me. I know that's ridiculous. I know the man. And that then raises another question. Do you know the elders in that way? Because at some point, it very well might be the case that someone brings a false accusation against one of them. And that is not the time then to to figure out if they're righteous and trustworthy people. No, the time to figure out if they're righteous and trustworthy people is now. When you do that, when you know their life, that's going to give so much more weight and gravity to the things they say. And it's going to give you a real life model of how to be a godly man or woman. You can't escape the need for a godly Christian leader, elder in your life. That was a a general uh, word, above reproach, blameless, that would really summarize everything that Paul is going to say about this leader. And after giving that general line that summarizes the whole of his character, He then gets into a very important area. The first thing that Paul talks about is he says, look at their life. Look at their family life specifically. What is their relationship like with their wife? What is their relationship like with their children? We need to note that. A person's family is going to display their character. You cannot shield your family from your vices. The leadership that you exercise in the home is going to be demonstrated in the relationships that you have with your children and how they behave, how your wife respects you, how you love her, 
And so the first qualification there, it's translated in the ESV as husband of one wife. Now, I think the best translation of that is the literal one, one woman man. And uh, this is a phrase that is completely unique to the New Testament, only here in Titus and only over in 1 Timothy. There in the 1 Timothy 3, there's also qualifications for, for elders, and Paul gives there also as a second qualification that they're a one-woman man. And what does that mean? Well, uh, I think a lot of light is shed onto it when you see a similar phrase also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Timothy is saying that the church should support widows who are faithful. And one way that they've demonstrated their faithfulness is that they were one man, uh, one man woman. So therefore, uh, based on those two things, I think we can conclude that husband of one wife, it doesn't mean that he's not a polygamist. Uh, that's not really the focus here, though that would exclude it too. Nor is the focus on that the man hasn't remarried. Rather, the focus is on that he's a one-woman man. That is, that the man is defined by his romantic devotion to one woman only, his wife. His romantic passions are not spread among a number of women. It's not that he's uh, married to a wife, but then he's not really close to her. No, this, uh, this qualification of a one-woman man, it's more than just that a man has not committed adultery, that he hasn't taken another wife. Rather, it's someone that exemplifies the oneness and unity that God designed in marriage. That's what an elder ought to be, someone whose marriage is exemplary, who is devoted to his wife above everybody else. Next, we see that the, the elder is qualified by his children. It says here in the ESV, his children are believers. Um, literally, the, the phrase is that he has faithful children. And then there is a, a significant uh, interpretive question about whether faithful children, does that mean that the children are themselves Christians, believers, or does it mean that they're faithful and that they're obedient and submissive? They're faithful to the leadership of their father. Um, a lot of good people uh, land on, on both sides of this issue. I, however, uh, lean on the side that uh, the faithful children refers to their conduct, that not necessarily that they're Christians, but that they're behaved. They respect and follow their father's authority. The, the reason I think that's the case um, is, first of all, because look at the next phrases. It says that they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So that's definitely a, a moral category. They're not doing terrible things. They're not debauched and insubordinate. So I think that would lend with saying positively that they're faithful. Second, uh, if you look over at the parallel list in 1 Timothy 3, there it's very clear that the qualification is not that the children be believers, but that they're obedient. That's what it says, that he manages his own household well and his children obey him. I think it would be kind of strange if over in 1 Timothy 3, Paul said that the qualification is a lower bar, that the, kid just, the kids just need to obey the father, and then over in Titus, he takes it up a whole higher level and says they need to be saved. Of course, the, the third problem being there that uh, a father can't control the salvation of his children, sadly. That's something that's left up to God. But again, uh, those are not definitive. Good people land on either side. 
whatever side you land on, though, the, the point holds true. The would-be elder needs to demonstrate his spiritual life and his leadership of his children. The way that he leads is going to be demonstrated in the lives of his children, whether it's that they're believers or just they're faithful. He is going to impact how they live their lives. And again, it can't be avoided. Who a man is in his heart, it's going to become clear in his family. And his virtues will show themselves in how his wife and children respect and follow him, and his vices will be made clear in that way too. For a poignant example, let's look again at the book of 1 Samuel, a book that is largely about leadership. And the very first leader in that book is a priest named Eli. And what, what causes Eli to lose his position as the leader in Israel and ultimately to lose his life? He does not manage his own household well. His children were priests who profaned the sacrifices, who were sexually immoral, And Eli is condemned. Why? It's not because he did nothing. He did something. You know what Eli did? He went to his debauched children and he said, stop it. This is inappropriate. That's not good enough, though. Uh, When I was back at Grace and I was talking about 1 Samuel, um, Sarah's dad is an elder there. So I gave the illustration. I said, imagine if it came out that I had been stealing thousands of dollars from Grace Community Church. For years, and then later they went and asked Sarah's dad, did you know, did you have any idea that Spencer was doing this? And he said, yeah, I did. And you know what? I told him to stop. A year ago, I told him to stop. But he kept doing it. You going to honor his leadership there? No. You have to do more than just tell people what they do. Indeed, in your home, you need to do more than just say what the right thing is. You need to have the authority through your life that they actually listen to the words you say. Eli is condemned that he speaks to his sons and says, you are doing something terrible and debauched, and they ignore him. Showed he was not a true leader to them. He did not manage his household well. And indeed, he lost his role. He lost his life, ultimately. And this sad theme of uh, failure in home leadership returns in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. They're really just one, divided into two, Samuel, uh, divided into two volumes. This theme of an uh, uncontrolled household comes back in the life of David. He is the man after God's own heart. He follows the Lord. He is a great and wonderful king. Until what? Until he's not a one-woman man anymore. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and to cover up his sin... Uh, He has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. What happens to David's life after that? His family falls apart. His one son molests his daughter, and what does David do? Nothing. So then his other son, Absalom, goes and kills that other son to punish him. And what does David do? Nothing. Absalom runs away, and he comes back, and Absalom obviously has no respect for his father's leadership. And so Absalom says, I am going to be the king now. He has a coup. He overthrows David. And what does David do? He just walks out. He leaves. And eventually, by God's grace, David wins. Absalom is killed in battle. The monarchy is properly restored. And yet even still, what does David do? He mourns the death of his traitor son. And what's the effect of that? 
The effect is that his most loyal general, Joab, comes to him and says, you love the ones who hate you and you hate the ones who love you. David's vice, his sin, could not be shielded from his family. No, rather, the consequences of his immoral and unethical behavior seeped and poisoned his family life. And that the destruction of his family, then ultimately what? It destroyed all of his authority, such that even his most loyal general won't respect him anymore, such that the, his, the people would follow Absalom and not him. Who you are is going to be seen in your family. You cannot protect them from your sins. Indeed, for the sake of your family, pursue godliness and goodness and virtue. That is what's going to make a healthy family. You can't fake it. And likewise, as we look to people who we ought to follow and lead, look at their lives. They might be able to fool you about their character. They're not going to fool their family. And their kids might even be able to say the right things. But if they have not been given proper leadership, direction, and modeling throughout their life, in their behavior, they will show that they have not been properly led. It's that simple. Well, that's it for the qualifications that we'll look at this morning. Again, we'll pick it up in verse 7 next time. And I'd like to close by encouraging all of you, specifically those who are members here at Makahilo Bible Church, you are very blessed. God has given you very qualified uh, leaders who are dedicated to him, who demonstrate these qualities in an exemplary manner. And they are deserving of your respect. Listen to what they teach. Heed their advice and direction. Follow their example. Pastor John, Pastor Steve, Pastor Jim, Pastor Rob, and Pastor Terry, I echo the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us a standard of leadership clearly in your word. Please help us weed out our false conceptions of what makes a good leader. Let us supplant those false conceptions with the truth of your word the true qualities outlined here. And Lord, as we find leaders who are like your son, who demonstrate these qualities, let us then follow them and take on those qualities ourselves by the power of your spirit. Amen. Now if you would stand for the benediction from Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.